This podcast provides general information about the law, not specific legal advice. The licensed attorney speaking on this podcast cannot take the place of a competent private attorney who can provide proper legal advice only after hearing the specific facts of your case. You're listening to Law and Caution, Protection Through Legal Education, brought to you by Legal Aid Center of Southern Nevada. Hello, my name is Josh Lozano. I'm a law student at William S. Boyd School of Law, and I'm here today with two attorneys, the Legal Aid Center, Southern Nevada. First, I'd like to reintroduce a recurring guest, Peter Aldos. He is a staff attorney for the Legal Aid Center Consumer Rights Project. He is a bankruptcy facilitator, assisting people who are representing themselves in bankruptcy court, and he also assists clients with many, many consumer law matters. How are you doing, Pete? Pretty good. Hi, Josh. All right. And then for the first time, uh, we have Taylor Altman, originally from New York. Uh, She's a staff attorney here also at the Legal Aid Center of Southern Nevada Consumer Rights Project, where she represents low-income and vulnerable individuals on the consumer protection issues. How are you doing, Taylor? Doing great today, Josh. Thanks for having both of us. Wonderful. Today, we're going to be discussing small claims. Uh, DIY justice, representing yourself effectively. Just as a plug, the Legal Aid Center also does a free small claims class that's available every Friday from what time, Pete? One to three. One to three. So come on by. This is a very general episode, but you'll be able to get into the weeds much more uh, during that free class. So just to start, for a lot of people out there, they don't know what small claims is. They're unsure. Uh, Maybe they have a dispute with their neighbor. Uh, but they're afraid of getting an attorney. They just don't think they can afford it. Can one of you just summarize what small claims is and who is it really designed for? Sure. I'll I'll go ahead and take that one, Josh. So small claims court is a special division of justice court that's designed to help parties who don't have attorneys, in other words, they're self-represented, to resolve their disputes quickly and inexpensively. So it's the ideal person for a small claims case is Really, someone who's representing themselves who doesn't have an attorney, but attorneys are allowed. They just can't mm-hmm. um, seek attorneys' fees through the small claims division. The claims that you would make are for less than ten thousand uh, dollars. You get only monetary relief. So, for example, if you want someone to do something or stop doing something, otherwise known as injunction or injunctive relief, that's not something you can seek in small claims court. So, it's only money. And uh, it's a relatively quick process. It starts with a demand letter, and I'm sure we'll get into the process a little bit mm-hmm. more, but it's only a few steps, and it's, it makes it easy for a self-represented litigant to pursue their case on their own. Yeah, so for those in the audience, Taylor did a great job of summarizing it. Small claims is ideal for, you know, the example we use a lot. Or it's actually, I volunteered to teach this class, is if you had a neighbor... Hi, ho neighborinos! ...and you gave them your lawnmower... And they just messed up your lawnmower, totally destroyed it. You couldn't go to the court and say, hey, I need a new lawnmower. But you could go to the court and ask for the value amount of that lawnmower. That's exactly right, Josh. So, right, no injunctive relief, but you could potentially get the value of that lawnmower if you can prove your case. And then, uh, Pete, what are some things that if you're a person that wants to go to small claim court, maybe they should consider or, or think about? Yeah. So, the first thing you want to think about is, what am I asking for? Mm-hmm. And again, that has to be money. Am I asking for the value of something that was damaged? Am I asking for money that is owed to me under a contract or agreement? And you have to be specific. 
One of the things you have to do with small claims court is send a demand letter. And in that demand letter, you were explaining what happened and explaining exactly how much money you were trying to collect. Mm -hmm. I just want to make it clear in uh, small claims court, you are limited to $10,000 in the total amount that you can win. That doesn't mean that the total amount that you're entitled to has to be $10,000. You can make a decision to say, even though I'm owed $20,000, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to be able to succeed in suing them in another court. So I'm going to just accept the $10,000 I get in small claims court and sue in small claims. And that means I have a much higher likelihood of winning, even though I'm not going to get all the money I'm owed or all the money I feel like I'm entitled to. Mm -hmm. It's a decision you're going to have to weigh in because uh, I know it's a lot easier if it was something like 12000 and it's okay, well, the 2000 I'll just cut the loss. I think I can win the ten. But like Pete said, if it's something a lot higher, like twenty, then you have to factor in things. Well, I'm not an attorney. I don't know if I want to uh, take this that far up. So Yeah, and another thing that surprises a lot of people that come to the class is Pain and suffering is not usually awarded in small claims. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really unfortunate for people because that makes up a lot of what they feel that they're entitled to. You know, not only did I not get the benefit of my bargain, for instance, with a contract, but this person has hurt me um, in some way. And so I want compensation for that, whether it's physical injury, emotional injury. That's not something you usually get in small claims. And you need to understand that up front. Mm hmm. Uh, just to tag on a couple of things, um, something to keep in mind uh, that you don't have an unlimited time to bring your claims. Mm -hmm. There are statutes of limitation that apply to most legal claims, um, at least the ones that are brought in small claims court. So, for example, if you had an oral or otherwise known as a verbal contract with someone and you're saying that the defendant breached that contract or they did something contrary to that contract, you have four years from the date of that breach to bring your claim. If it's a written contract, six years from the date of that breach, or if you're suing for tort, that's kind of a personal harm, you know, think negligence for being rear-ended in a car accident, that's only two years. So things to keep in mind um, that you don't have forever to bring a claim. You know, if you don't bring a claim within the statute of limitations, your rights may forever be lost, unfortunately. So something to keep in mind as you're um, beginning your case from the outset. Yeah, and that's why we wanted to open this podcast about with talking about, do you have a good case? These are such things that you should factor in. Am I past the statute of limitations? Am I trying to claim more than $10,000? So these are all things to factor in uh, before you even consider going into uh, the small claims process. Okay, so for those of you at home, that's step one. You send a demand letter. Hopefully, they just respond. Uh, they're a nice person, and that's it. You get the relief you're looking for. You send a demand letter, they don't respond back, or they basically tell you to pound sand, something rude, right? So what's the next step after that? So the next step after a demand letter is you, you wait 10 days mm -hmm. uh, to see if they respond. They could either, you know, like you said, respond and make, make a deal with you. They could pay you what you're asking for. You can go to mediation. There's the Neighborhood Justice Center, which offers free mediation for parties, and it's often very effective for resolving disputes outside of court. But let's say none of that happens. The other party uh, returns your letter with something rude or they just don't respond. 10 days have passed. You can file a complaint in small claims court. So that's really just a one-page form. You explain the relief that you're seeking, meaning the amount of money and a brief explanation of why. And you file that with the justice court in your jurisdiction. And at that point, um, you would need to get it served, meaning delivered to the defendant, to the party that you're suing. 
And this can be done, well, it has to be done by a third person. It can't be done by you as the plaintiff, the suing party. You have to get either law enforcement, the constable or sheriff, or a third party such as a family member, friend, or private process server. And Taylor, you brought up a good point, which is you've got to file this case in the right jurisdiction. So the jurisdiction can mean a few different things depending on the basis of your complaint. It's frequently the place where the event happened or was supposed to happen. It can also be where the defendant resides or where they resided at the time of the incident. Um, but you want to make sure that you're filing in the right jurisdiction because if you file in the wrong jurisdiction, then your case will get thrown out. There are three jurisdictions in Clark County where you will file a small claims case. It may be in Las Vegas, it may be in North Las Vegas, and it may be in Henderson. Mm -hmm. And there are actually differences in the process depending on which one of these jurisdictions you end up filing in. For instance, with Henderson, you have, 14, you have to give them 14 days to respond to your demand letter, not just 10. You also have to go through a mandatory mediation process in Henderson that you don't have to go through with the other courts. And in Las Vegas, not in North, North Las Vegas or in Henderson, you have to file electronically. You have to e-file. You can still do that at the clerk's office, but the process is still a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And then also, too, there will be links to uh, the self-help center and legal aid and uh, the different requirements for the jurisdiction. But th that's some great advice. So, you know, I'm, th I'm an audience member and I'm thinking right now, well, what if I don't want to go to small claims? If I send a demand letter, do I still have to go through with everything? No, it's, it's not required. Uh, that, that the demand letter is just a first step. And again, the, the whole idea is that hopefully it works by clearly explaining what it is that you want and by adding the threat that if they don't respond, you are going to small claims court. Hopefully, at least you start a dialogue that can result in you getting some kind of relief. Yeah, just to add on to that, um, in terms of the demand letter, it's required that you send it by certified mail return receipt, and we always recommend return receipt requested to make the other party sign for it, because what you need to show is that you sent you sent it, um, and there's some way to, of having proof of mailing. Mm -hmm. um, even if the other side doesn't respond, you can still wait the you know 10 or 14 days and then file your small claims complaint, but you have to prove that you, you tried to send the demand letter that you did send it and that you have proof of the mailing, even if the other party chooses not to respond or doesn't respond in the way that you feel is adequate for your situation. Yeah, so that way it's not a your word against theirs. So. Exactly. And that's a, a good general uh, piece of advice for everything involving court, mm -hmm. including small claims court. You have to prove it. To the extent possible, you want to have something beyond just your own testimony to establish something. So in the case of I sent the demand letter, you have a little green card from the post office that says, I sent this and I sent it to the right address. But when you get to your damages, for instance, we were talking about the case of a damaged lawnmower, you want to show this is the value of my lawnmower. Not, well, I just made up an amount. Maybe it's the receipt from when you bought it. Maybe it's examples mm -hmm. of other similar lawnmowers that are available for sale. Maybe it's a bill from somebody who says, I'll fix your lawnmower and it's going to cost you this much money. Yeah, it's, it's really important. That's one reason, too, we talked about it earlier is you have to decide, okay, well, is, is this a good case? While you might have a, a moral and a principle reason, you deserve this and we agree with you. However, you might not have a, a legal recourse or a way to prove it in court, unfortunately. So uh, it's important to try and keep those receipts. Uh, we talked about serving. What are your thoughts about going through, because like Taylor said, it doesn't have to be you. Uh, it can be 
as long as someone that's not uh, a party to the case. What are your suggestions about someone that going through a processor or a constable? So my thoughts about that are if you get a fee waiver uh, because you can't afford the filing fee in justice court, you can get the constable in your jurisdiction to uh, serve your complaint to the defendant for free. Mm -hmm. And so we recommend that route. Um, if someone feels more comfortable having a family or friend, someone who's not in the business of process serving, they can do that as well. It just can't be you as the plaintiff serving the defendant because it has to be at arm's length, you know, mm -hmm. so you want to show that you're doing this through all the official channels. And um, you can also hire a, pro a private process server as well. Thing is, why would I want to pay someone to do this when I can just get, you know, my cousin Billy to do it for free? Well, what I would say to that is if you really trust your cousin Billy and you know that he's going to do a good job in serving the defendant and he's going to be able to track them down and so forth and hand it to them personally, the summons and complaint, and then file a proof of service with the court proving that he actually served that person, great, then use cousin Billy if he's willing to do it. But if you want to make sure that everything gets done, um, you know, in an expedited manner and professionally, you want to make sure that every, you know, all the steps are followed. I would probably recommend going with a process server, somebody who's in the business of doing this on a regular basis mm -hmm. and understands all those steps. And there can also be some safety concerns. Uh, nobody likes to get sued. Mm -hmm. And depending on who the defendant is, cousin Billy may not feel safe going up and handing them a lawsuit. If it's the constable or sheriff, that's their job. They've got a badge and a gun and they'll, they'll be fine um, no matter who it is that they're going to serve. That's a great point, Pete. And something else, too, um, this is something I've encountered in Southern Nevada. There are a lot of gated communities, and your defendant may live in a gated community. And if you can't enter, legally enter and you know, give it to them at their doorstep, you can serve the gate guard. And that's uh, you know, a method of substituted service in our state. Yeah. And then also, too, for those are all great reasons you want to make sure you keep your family members safe. And if you are worried about costs, it's called the Memorandum of Costs. And what you can do is you can, if you end up winning... Uh, you can actually uh, include that. So certain fees like your service or the cost of mailing, uh, you can actually get that back. You can request that through the court. So you, like we said, we couldn't request attorney's fees, but those are types of costs that you can get back if you end up winning. All right. So, all right, so we served him. We properly served him. And I know we're going by pretty quickly on this because this is just a small podcast. That's why we recommend going online and uh, attending the class. But you served him properly served them, what would be the next step after that? So the court's going to set a trial date for you. Mm -hmm. And that's usually going to be about 90 days in the future. And at that trial date, you are going to present your entire case to the judge. That complaint that you filed with the court only has a few sentences on it. And you don't, mm -hmm. attach, your, you don't attach your exhibits to the complaint. So you need to make sure that you have your entire case ready to go before you get to court. You're going to have all of your exhibits, your evidence. You're going to make sure that's clearly organized probably going to want to practice and make sure that you know everything that you want the judge to know and that you're going to explain that fairly quickly because these cases usually only take about 10 to 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. What I also recommend is to organize evidence that you have a binder. So a binder for yourself of all your different exhibits, just to keep it organized for yourself. And then a binder for the judge, as mm -hmm. well as a binder for the other party. And maybe you even want to make one more just in case they show up with an attorney. Um, so just have, you know, just some extra copies of your exhibits, maybe an extra binder, 
but um, this is a great way of keeping yourself on track and um, making sure the judge understands sequentially what happened and here's all the evidence I have to prove my case. A question some people have is, well, I, I don't really know who wronged me. You know, I went to the mechanic. I don't know who should I, should I serve the mechanic? Am I suing the mechanic? Am I suing the owner? Who do I sue? That, that can end up being what we call legal advice, which mm -hmm. is something that we, we can't give that in a general podcast because it's going to be different in every case. Some of the general rules you're going to want to follow is if there was a business involved, you're probably going to want to name the business. Mm -hmm. If it was an individual whose name is on a contract, you're probably going to want to name that individual. And if you know who it was that harmed you, if it's a case, maybe somebody uh, ran into you uh, with their car or something, you're going to want to name the person who actually did the act that harmed you. But it can be a very difficult question, who, who should I name? Um, sometimes it's very hard to find that person that you should name. I'm going to put in a quick plug for our small claims ask a lawyer, which is something we do through our pro bono project at Legal Aid Center. You can sign up and get a 15-minute consultation with a lawyer free of charge, and you can ask them questions, and they'll help you with something like, who should I be naming in this lawsuit? Mm -hmm. Something else to tag on to that, if you're suing a business, um, you might not know the full legal name of the business just by looking at, you know, the sign out front. It could just be, you know, ABC Auto Sales, but that's just their name that they do business under, their DBA. And so um, you can do some research on the, uh, the county clerk's website to see fictitious firm names just to make sure that you get, you know, ABC, car dealership, DBA, whatever they're doing business as. Just, this is just something to look into if you're suing a business. You want to make sure to get the business name correct. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the case could be stalled. Um, it could be, you know, set for a later hearing date or you just might not get the relief you want against the right entity if you sue under the wrong name. All right. And then I think with that, what we're going to do is we're going to go take a quick break and then we're going to do our little game show where our attorneys answer a couple of questions. And then after that, we're going to wrap up and probably talk about one of the bigger issues with small claims was actually collecting your judgment. So congratulations if you were able to win. Uh, now you face another battle, which is actually collecting on that judgment. Have any questions about representing yourself in small claims court? Curious about bankruptcy or the process involved for sealing your criminal record? Legal Aid Center of Southern Nevada has partnered with the William S. Boyd School of Law to offer free legal education classes, open to all, available either in person or online. Each class is instructed by law students under the expert supervision of a licensed attorney, dedicated to providing you with a solid foundation to navigate the complex legal world. There are a wide range of classes from guardianship, divorce, and custody, litigation and trial preparation, tenants' rights, collection-proof classes, and more. While these classes are educational, the student's supervising attorney do not and cannot provide legal advice. Please visit www.lacsn.org. All right, welcome back. So... What we're going to do now is the Truth Game Show segment where we quiz the attorneys a little bit. And then after that, we're going to wrap up with the big chunk of the episode, which is collecting judgment, certain types of exemptions that go with it. Uh, what are your kind of, what are your options available if unfortunately the person that you got the judgment from isn't playing ball? I think I'm entitled. You want answers. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I feel comfortable using legal jargon in everyday life. Your Honor, I'd like to ask for a recess. No. The defense is wrong. 
All right, so th- this quiz is about judgment in general. So uh, first question, uh, I, I have a job in Nevada. How much of my income is protected? It's a trick question. Mm-hmm. It all depends on how much income you have. So it starts off with the general rule that no more than 25% of your net income, your take-home pay, can be taken to satisfy a judgment. But if your net, uh, your gross income is less than $770 a week, only 18% of your paycheck can be taken. But if you make less than $362.50 a week or 10 times the federal minimum wage, none of your income can be taken. All of that unless the judgment you have against you is for child support. Perfect. Okay, and then the next question. So, I'm afraid that they are going to lie about their income. I'm afraid that they are not being honest with the court. Do I have an option to make them uh, display their income or show their document? Yes, that's a great question, actually, because you may not know once you've won in court um, how to collect on uh, collect that judgment on the defendant, right? You might not know where he or she works, banks, and uh, and so or does business, or, and so forth. So there is a powerful tool. It's called the Judgment Debtors Exam, and you can ask the court to hold one of these, um, where the debtor comes in under oath and testifies as to really any any financial questions that you ask them. So, for example, where do you work? How much do you earn? How often do you get paid? Uh, do you have any uh, safe deposit box? Do you have a bank account, credit union account? All of these questions they would be obligated to answer because they're under oath and they have to answer, they should be answering truthfully. Okay, perfect. So those were the, the two questions I had for the game show. Uh, can either one of you kind of talk about, before we talk about the exceptions, the public misunderstanding that, okay, well, I won. The, the, the judge said that you owe me this money. This is great. Now I'm going to start getting my money. Uh, but can you kind of clear uh, clear the air about that, about the difficulty of actually collecting? Sure, I can speak a little to that. I know there is a, a kind of a common misunderstanding or a myth about going to court and winning that the money will just appear. Well, a lot of times it doesn't happen like that. Sometimes you'll have a very honest defendant who realizes that they lost the case, there's a judgment against them, and they'll just pay you. In a perfect world, that would be wonderful. You just get paid. The court, however, doesn't have um, really any authority to tell the defendant you have to pay and you have to pay on time and you have to pay this much and so forth. So it's really up to the plaintiff to collect that judgment on the defendant if the defendant doesn't pay up right away. And so we like to tell individuals who come and seek our help for small claims, we tell them, you know, you really need to win twice. First, you need to win in court and get that judgment against the defendant, and then you need to collect, meaning you have to get that judgment paid. That's right. And we, we talked a little bit about one of the tools you have to get that judgment paid, which is that judgment debtor examination. And that really gets at the idea that it's up to you as the successful plaintiff, or what we call the uh, judgment creditor, to go find the money and then to go collect it. And you do have the power of your judgment, which gives you something uh, called the writ of execution. You can have the court enter a writ of execution that says that the constable or the sheriff has to go collect this for you. But you have to be very specific about what they're going to collect. So you can say, I want to levy a bank account, and it is at this bank. And then the constable will go to that bank and will collect money from that bank account. Or like we talked earlier about wages, you need to go to this person's employer, you need to tell them about this judgment, and you need to have that employer send money to the constable based on that that calculation, how much of their income is available, 
And then the constable will give that money back to that judgment creditor. Yeah. And then something that was really popular that was asked often when we were instructing the class was, oh, well, you know, I've been trying to collect and it's been years and years and years. Should I renew this judgment still? Is, is it even worth it? Is this something that I should do? And on the one hand, that is obviously legal advice mm -hmm. that we can't answer in any specific case, but it also gets back to a question you should be asking yourself way back at the beginning of the case, before you get into any of all of the work and the expense, which is, if I win, am I going to be able to collect the money? Because if you look at the, the person that you're suing and you say, well, this person doesn't have a job, this person doesn't have money in the bank account, you may not ever get your money and you may be wasting your time finding the small claims lawsuit. On the other hand, if this person had been sending you checks regularly and then they just stopped as they were, for instance, repaying a debt, now you know what bank they bank at because you have their checks. So it may be a great situation, it may be an awful situation, but hopefully it's something you have some information about before you start so you know if you're wasting your time. Getting back to that specific question of renewing the judgment, it isn't particularly complicated to renew the judgment. A lot of it just comes down to timing. Uh, you have basically a three-month period at the end of the six years that a judgment is valid to file the affidavit to serve it and, and to renew your judgment. So it may be worthwhile. In a lot of cases, it's probably not, but it may not be too much of an investment to get that judgment renewed. Mm -hmm. And just to tag on to that, um, I know we're probably going to touch on this a little bit, but if someone is collection-proof or judgment-proof, meaning that they don't have income or assets that can be touched by a judgment, um, you know, it, that state, the collection-proof or judgment-proof state may not be permanent. So in the first six years, maybe they are collection-proof and you can't get the money from them because they have some kind of protected form of income, which we'll cover in a bit. Um, it might make sense in that case to renew the judgment because in that next six-year period or next six-year period, their financial situation may change. They may go back to work. They may have some other form of income. They may come into an inheritance. We don't know. Um, and so it could really pay to keep renewing the judgment in case the defendant's financial situation changes. Yeah, you never know. And then like Pete said, this is why it's very important to consult a attorney and to ask those specific legal advice, such as the Ask Lawyer program. Uh, do you two want to talk more about the exceptions? I know you just kind of alluded to it right now, Taylor. Uh, the certain things that are protected, things that aren't. Sure. So when I talk about someone being collection proof or judgment proof, collection proof is the way um, we at the Legal Aid Center address this kind of state of affairs where a person has uh, income or assets that either fall under some kind of legal exemption um, or they're, for example, I'll give a you know classic example. Someone's only income is from Social Security. So they're only getting money direct deposited into a bank account from the U.S. Treasury. Right, that kind of income is protected. You can't garnish that, those types of, you know, those types of income because it is protected, falls under an exemption. So for example, let's say the person's only source of income is Social Security. They don't own any property. They don't have a car. They don't uh, own any real estate. They're just a renter, for example. Um, that person may be totally collection proof and you wouldn't be able to collect a judgment against this person unless their financial situation improved. And let's say they became mm -hmm. a wage earner again or acquired some property. Mm. And kind of flashing back to our earlier conversation about bankruptcy, because the list of things you can keep in bankruptcy is actually essentially the same as the list of things that you can protect from a creditor, including somebody who won a case against you in small claims. 
That includes things like your home. You have a homestead exemption that means they can't take your home. Your vehicle, as long as the equity value is worth less than $15,000. Your furniture, your clothes up to $12,000. Tools of the trade, things you use to do your job valued up to $10,000. Personal collections, libraries up to $5,000. Social security, like Taylor mentioned, in any amount. Other public benefits like welfare, like unemployment, protected in any amount. And then you have that wild card exemption. $10,000 of whatever you want that you can keep safe. And again, when you're looking at this from the perspective of somebody who has won a case in small claims, your judgment mm-hmm. is limited to $10,000. And so if you can only collect up to $10,000 and they have almost anything that they can protect up to $10,000 for a person, it may not be uh, a good idea to sue because you may not be able to collect. They'll use their wild card exemption and keep themselves safe. One really important note with small claims is that businesses are not entitled to exemptions mm-hmm. at all. all. All of the money that a business has, the money in their business bank account, the income they receive, their investments, their assets are all 100% available to creditors. Something I'd like to add on to that about businesses, if you are suing, for example, a car dealership or an auto body shop or a garage, uh, these businesses by law have to have some kind of surety bond. And the surety bond um, is basically, you can think of it as a pot of money that's there for consumer protection. So, um, for example, if if you're suing a used car dealer because they sold you a bad car, um, consider whether, you know, this, it should be bond, the business should be bonded. That's another source of income you can go after, you know, um, if you do win a judgment against this car dealer, you can pursue that judgment on the surety bond and um, demand payment from that bond. So that's uh, one thing. If you're suing a business, you know, like a mechanic, uh, you don't have to necessarily, and they're bonded, they're made sure that they're actually backed by the state of Nevada, then you don't have to worry that you wouldn't be able to collect on the judgment. And then uh, is there anything else that you two would like to add uh, before we wrap up? Uh, Okay, what to do if you are the defendant? You are being sued by a plaintiff Mm -hmm. in, in small claims court. If you feel that the complaint isn't proper, you're not the right party, you can file a motion to dismiss. And, that, mm-hmm. and what that's saying to the court is, I don't belong in this lawsuit. Dismiss this person's complaint because this isn't proper. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is there's not a lot of motions and other documents being filed back and forth in a small claims case. It really is very streamlined and it caters to self-represented litigants. So when you go in there, it's, uh, you know, the judge will have any number of cases, you know, several cases, you know, so sometimes... 10, 15 Mm -hmm. cases that he or she is hearing on that afternoon during this set period of time. So you you could spend some time waiting for your case to be called. So that's something else. Just if you need to take off work um, for your small claims case, just make sure to budget a few hours in there while you're waiting for your case to be called. Sometimes you might be called first, but there is a chance you might be called last. And being called last, actually, interestingly enough, you can watch what other people are doing and see what's, you know, effective uh, or not effective in the way that they argue their cases. And it might be helpful to go and watch small claims a few days or a few weeks before your case is going to be heard, mm-hmm. just so you know what to expect. And then one other common misconception from people in the class, and I think this is a common misconception as it relates to the law in general, is if you don't like the result, you don't like what the judge said, you think the judge is wrong, 
and you want to appeal, you need to understand that an appeal is not a new trial. It's not a chance to put on additional facts or even in small claims to put on anything at all. All you do is file essentially the record of the case along with your written explanation for what you think the judge got wrong, and that appeals judge is just going to look at, did this small claims judge make a mistake in the law? The facts that the small claims judge determined are correct are not, uh, not under consideration. It is only the law that the judge applied. And so in almost every case, appeals are not successful. Yeah, so with that, we'll wrap up. And then for the audience, uh, like Pete said, so just make sure to try and win the initial case because on the appeal, uh, you can't just go up and say, well, I think that the witness was lying through their teeth and I want a different judge to listen. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen. They're just going to say, well, did the judge interpret the law correctly and did they apply it? More likely than not, they did. And then that's the end of that. So do your best to try and win the initial case. But thank you, Taylor. Thank you, Pete, for coming on. Thank you so much, Josh, for having us. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Yeah, of course. And then like we said, all the resources and links will be in the description below. So take care. Thank you for listening to Law and Caution, Protection Through Legal Education. Links to helpful resources can be found in the description. Have a great day!